Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm going to read you a passage of scripture here real quickly. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus comes to this region of Caesarea Philippi and asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That was his favorite term for himself, Son of Man. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He just replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell basically will not overcome it. So Lord, as we move into this conversation, I pray that you'd shape this conversation and guide us in this process, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. One small housekeeping thing before we dive into this. Um, I know we've had a lot of that today, and we'll trim that down as we go on. You may have noticed last week um, that the band, uh, I think, started actually at, at 11 o'clock with a, a, a set, and then with a countdown, it was supposed to end at 5 after. Uh, we were going to start the service at 5 after. We were doing this because we know you. <laughs> and um, I, I want to say this in the most respectful fashion possible. Um, we have uh, Eastern Standard Time, there's Central Mountain Time, there's Pacific, and then there's Rock Point Standard Time. And Rock Point Standard tends to be about five to ten minutes after anything else that goes on. So we did that this week, and um, last week, and we're so programmed that when they start, even the lights were off anywhere else, people still stand and engaged in the process. So I, I want to be very direct with you and open with you and respectful of you and, and ask for your help. So this is an attempt to embarrass or disturb anybody. A lot of us are late for different reasons. We have kids that just are hard to manage in the morning or spouses that are hard to manage in the morning. Whatever the case may be, um, there's a lot of different reasons. So I don't want anyone to feel embarrassed about this. But I'm going to ask you, if you could at all possible uh, make an effort to be here actually at the 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock or even a few minutes early. Now what we're going to do starting uh, today a bit already, and we're going to do this going on from this point on, is the, the team's going to start a set just to, to make you aware if you're in other parts of the building at 5 till. So we're not going to play with any time periods, because if we play with time periods, here's what happens. We set it at 5 after 9, everyone adjusts to 5 after 9. And so I'm just asking you, if you could be thoughtful about this, and if you can't because of other events, then please, no one's going to zap you, no one's going to hit you with a taser or anything else like that. Um, but if you can be here at 9-11, there's so much of, of the worship and just being together at the start that's important. So just to ask, okay? That fair enough? Okay, to consider at least. Um, I had a Bible that I've had for many, many years. I carried it all around the world, and um, as is typical for books, it began to break down over time. 
And so the binding broke on it, and so I, the cover became detached. Um, and so I actually took duct tape and put it for a binding. I tried to make it work, okay? Now this isn't a picture of my Bible, but this actually gives you an idea of, of what it was like. I tried that, only I didn't even have that back part actually, so I had to have that all the way around. It still didn't work. So I left it in my office and I would use it oftentimes as reference because this book was important to me, not just because it's the Bible, but because it was one that I had for many years. There were a lot of notes that I'd scribbled in it, dates of different moments of a scripture that had come important to me or revealed to me. There's, there's all sorts of stuff in it. But for years, I haven't been able to use it the way I normally would. And I guess in my mind, I'd, I'd heard somewhere about rebinding, but I guess I had the impression that it was going to be extremely expensive. Well, this last April or May, I found a place in Mount Clemens I was directed to, and I was able to have my, I, I gave my Bible over. For $55, they were able to rebind this. Now, for me, that was worthwhile. And so um, several months went past, and I just got it back, actually, in, uh, about a month ago, and I was just amazed. I mean, this was, this was my old Bible, okay? But, and it's got all my original notes, all the original stuff. Everything inside here is what I've had over the decades of time. But it now has not just a new binding, so it looks good, which I don't care about it looking good. I mean, really, the more beat up it is, the better looking, you know, you appear, you know, because like you really, you know. So it actually looks like I haven't studied much anymore. But, but what I do like is that it's all bound together. I don't have pages slipping out, which was happening before, or things getting ripped potentially. And as I was having this, it processed with me a little bit about where we're at as a church. And hence, the title of this series entitled The Binding. And The Binding isn't meant to be a binding. It's meant to be a rebinding of a book. God is entering us into a new season of time. This Isaiah passage that you find on the front of your bulletin cover is, um, for us, a statement of this next year of time that we're setting loose of some things of the past and embracing some things of the future. But it's important when we do that that we do not lose track of our roots that we do not lose track of the essentials in the process. So for the next four weeks, I want to talk to you about those things that have bound us in the past that are critical that we will not release. And then four things that we believe are going to be part of the future that we need to be bound together on and aware of. A lot of times we'll talk about different things that have happened in the past, and a number of us have been here for those events. And some of those may be still important to maybe make a notation of, and some of you who are brand new to the process could have an interest in that, but not for a lengthy, gory detail of it. I liken it like this. Um, my wife and I have been married for 35 years. Um, if at some point in time um, I drop dead here and she marries somebody else, which is unlikely because it just, it'd be impossible for her to deal with that afterwards. Um, but let's just say she does the next day. Um, <laughs> Now, for her new husband, it would be important to him, I think, to find out certain details of how she treated me. You might want to think about that, just as a thought, okay. Um, because that could influence him, and that could be of import. But for her to constantly regale him of past stories of our, would be really a drag, understand? So for those who are newer to the community, to know certain traits of how we've handled ourselves in the past is important because you can know the baseline of integrity or how we've handled things. But to bore into detail on that is of not significance. And so we want to look at those things that we think are essential to the process. So I'm going to begin with this. How many of you know um, what this art piece is about or the history of this art piece? Raise your hand. How many of you know that? A portion of you, but not all of you by any stretch of the imagination. 
So just quickly, um, when we built the other structure out there and renovated everything back in 2005, um, back in actually 2004, I think it was, we had a groundbreaking at a homecoming. A thousand of us were out in a tent out in the back area there. We gave everyone a stake. Everyone brought their own marker and a hammer and everyone tied a little surveyor's uh, um, uh, material off to the top and fluttering away. And then they, they went to different places in the area that was to be constructed on and they wrote on there the name of their family and on the other side they wrote either a scripture that was important to them or the name of someone that they were in relationship with who they wanted to see come to the Lord, to come to Christ. And then everyone, um, as families or as groups, uh, pounded that stake into the ground out there and prayed over it while a bagpiper played uh, Amazing Grace. It was actually kind of cool. Um, later, after a couple of weeks of those staying out there, as they dug up the ground, they collected all those, and a number of them they put together, our art people put them in shellac and put them in there and put this rock in the center. And we've talked about us as a community and what that represents. And there are people who are in this church right now whose name was written on there who did not know Christ, but now do know Christ. And so it has had some significance to us. That's not what I want to draw out to you, though, today. What I want to draw your attention to today are not the stakes and what that represents, but the rock in the center. The rock in the center was to represent Christ. And it was to say that Christ stands at the core of this community, that Christ is, in fact, central to this community. That was of extreme importance to us and continues to be of extreme importance to us. In a society in which counterfeit gospels, false doctrines, and diluted theology are becoming rampant, the church needs to define Christianity in its historical, biblical terms. And at the center of that is a real person who really lived and really died. And that person is Jesus Christ. Now, before I go much further, let me ask you another question. I expect far fewer of you know this. How many of you know with absolute certainty what the name Rock Point actually means, where we derived that from? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. Far fewer of us. So the rest of you just thought it was a nice name for a subdivision, huh? In 1994, we were still in Heights Assembly of God, and we took a vote and decided to change the name for a number of reasons. We thought when God changes things and people, he changes their names. And he wanted, we wanted to embrace some new things at that time that God had for us 25 years ago or so. And so we examine the scripture I just read, Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? And people respond the same way as they do today. You know, some say you're a great teacher. Some say you're a reincarnation. Some say you're all this and all that. And then he says to his disciples, but what do you say? And Simon Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He says, blessed are you. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you're Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevent, overcome it. There are those who think that, that, the, that he was establishing something upon Peter um, uh, as, as a foundational statement. But there are others that look at the statement that Peter made. The identification and confession that Jesus Christ was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he was in fact God. And it's from this that we drew, this passage of scripture that we drew the name. And so we actually had in a resolution that we offered up at that time, and it has this definition, rock, a firm foundation or support. Point, with an E on the end, French spelling. Why? Well, we just sat there and said, you know, there's a gross point, what the heck, you know? So, I mean, it's like, you know, we could be, you know, rock point. All right? But here, point also means the most prominent or important idea of something written or spoken. 
a definite, often decisive moment in time. And then we put together rock point, a foundational statement or pivotal moment of truth. The ultimate rock point is that decisive moment in time at which an individual acknowledges the lordship of Jesus as the Christ, as the son of the living God, as God himself. That point that Peter made on that rock, on that foundational moment. We also said that when you clear away all the dirt and you're going to build a place, that you clear it all down there and you get down to the bedrock. And when you find that place of that rock, that point, that rock point is where you can actually build something solid as a foundation. You need to understand that this is a central aspect of who we are. That we identify first and foremost with the name of Jesus Christ. And, and that's a popular thing nowadays. Jesus is kind of like Gumby. He can be whoever you want him to be and support whatever cause you want him to support. If you're anti-LGBT, so is he. If you're pro-LGBT, so is he. If you're Republican, it's amazing. Jesus is Republican. If you're Democrat, it's amazing. He's a Democrat. He's actually a libertarian. He's an ecology person and an end of the ecology and the environmentalist. And did you know that Jesus was himself an immigrant that was tossed aside at one point in time? He's anything you want him to be. But that is not the truth of the matter. The biggest issue that's tossed out there is, is like what is said in the first portion of this passage of Matthew, saying that it is, it's, like a, um, it's like a good teacher. It's like a, a, a person who's just good and proper and everything else. And that really doesn't work. In fact, every single religious group out there, for the most part, recognizes or honors Jesus as this moral, upright, good teacher. And you guys wonder why I like C.S. Lewis so much. It's because he's... He's brilliant in his simplicity. And he writes in Mere Christianity this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus Christ. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg. I don't know why poached egg instead of fried egg. I just think that's funny. Or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. And so we reject that whole first portion was his. Instead, we embrace him as Christ because that's who he said he was. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1 and 4, um, Paul is saying, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Do you know that you can be zealous for something of God, but ignorant? And that zealous without knowledge is ignorant. And it can do actually more damage than help. He says, since they didn't know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, he says. But they ignore that. They can't get their arms around that. They're zealous for God. Paul knows something about this because Paul was incredibly zealous for God. He pursued the Christians all over the place, killing them in God's name. 
But he was without knowledge. He was without understanding the nature of Christ, who Jesus truly was. So when he speaks here, he's speaking as one in true authority of knowing what zealous without knowledge, which incidentally is the reason why we support Detroit Bible Institute. Zealousness without knowledge is a problem. And so if you're going to be a part of this church, we will not bore you with all our history but we are going to pull four points out of these next couple of weeks. And the first one is that Christ is at the center. And it's Christ for who he said he was, not who we say. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, hey, my wife and I are one. So my buddies and I were one. Then maybe that's just talk about, no, he was identifying specifically as God. How do we know this? Because three verses later, they start to try to stone him. In John 10, 33, he says, we're not stoning you for any good work you've done. But for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. When he said, the Father and I are one, they said, oh, you're claiming to be God. They knew it. They understood the language. And they, because of their zealousness, but their lack of knowledge and understanding, wanted to stone him for it. John 8, verse 58, he says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And that phrase, I am, was very specific. He wasn't just claiming that he'd been born hundreds of years before the time he was discussing. He was speaking something specific out of Exodus 3.14, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. It was the personal name of God. And they knew that. How do we know they knew that? Because in John 8.58, when he says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am, and he put it in quotes in essence, In the next verse, they pick up stones to stone him because they recognize he's identifying as God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh in 1.14, made his dwelling among us. It's full of grace and truth. Jesus, God, coming in the flesh. I was wondering, what did God look like? How would he act? Now he's in the flesh, walking, talking, engaging us. John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas, who's my namesake. My last name is Tomko. It means son of Thomas. Uh, Come from a gang of skeptics, evidently. And so here's the doubter. Here's the skeptic, Thomas, saying what? He says he calls him my Lord and my God. This person knew what it was. The rest of you catch on. My Lord and my God, he calls him. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus is saying, waiting for the blessed hope, appearing in the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. All of this was wrapped together. He not only identified as God, those who followed him did. In John 14.6, this passage meant a lot to us over the years. We actually inscribed it around the building. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the center of who we are and how we identify. He was not a good teacher. He was not just a good man. Those options were never given to us. He is the center, and whatever binding we put on things, whatever new approaches we take, whatever new endeavors we launch out into, that one issue is non-negotiable. 
He is God. He is our salvation. His work on the cross makes us sin-filled individuals able to stand in the presence of God. It's by his grace that we even stand. Not by works. Not by the things that we, we don't do the things and serve in, in the different areas and in order to, to gain points. It's out of a love for God and because he's given us what he's given us. There's a television show, I don't even know what's on anymore, but it started out as a show called The Good Place. I think um, uh, Kirsten something or other is one of the stars in it. And it's supposed to be this like, humorous depiction of life after death. The creator, Michael Schur, said it's based on, quote, the idea of an omniscient point system, like we're all playing a video game that we don't know we're playing. And someone's keeping score, and the 10 highest scores out of every 10,000 people get rewarded. They get to go to the good place. Well, Eleanor is this character that, that uh, finds herself within this small minority of the world's best people, and she finds herself in the good place. One problem is that evidently she doesn't actually belong there. She's actually been a pretty awful, terrible person. And so Michael, the architect of the good place, uh, finds out that she's there by mistake, and so she gives, he gives her a questionnaire to gauge her worthiness. This was a questionnaire. Did you commit murder? Did you commit arson? So far, most of us in the room are probably, not all of us, but most are safe. Did you ever take off your shoes and socks on an airplane? <laughs> Did you ever have a vanity license plate? Did you ever reheat fish in an office microwave? <laughs> You're going to hell. <laughs> this last one is my favorite. Have you ever cared about The Bachelor and any of its attendant spin-off television shows? <laughs> he then lets her know that, that they're going to watch some highlights from her life, and, and Michael's going to try to determine from that if she's good enough to stay in the good place. And Eleanor makes this statement. This is what gets me here. It says, it doesn't make me look great, so don't judge me. To which Michael replies, that's literally the purpose of this entire exercise, <laughs> is to judge you, is that we'll all be judged, and that our own righteousness, we're all going to hell, every single one of us. But it's because Jesus is who he said he was, that by his death and sacrifice, that we're able to walk free and clear. Now, that's not the end of it. We'll talk more about that at a later time. There's more to come, a lot more to come. But that center point. Now, here's one other point, and we won't take long on this, but this is the other point that I need to have you. So first of all, if you accept that point, that's part of being part of this community. But the second issue has to go to his character. Do you not just accept who Jesus was, but do you know his character? Do you know who he is? I use Jeff Brown as an example. First service, I'll use Rob Marcus as one of the second. If Rob, if someone were to tell me that Rob Marcus had violently accosted them with foul language, I would say absolutely not. I've known Rob for 35 years. And Rob can certainly be offensive, but not with foul language. <laughs> now, Rob is one of the best people I know, and I know for a fact that he would never do that. So if you tell me that, I'll say you're wrong. Why? Because he said that he wouldn't. No, he doesn't have to tell me that. I know his character. We look at Jesus today and make him be Gumby for whatever it is, but there's specific things that we are told about his character, and then there's other things that, we, that point in such a way that we know would not be a part of who he is. How many of you know Kate Badalamenti, Mickey's wife? If you know Kate, she's one of the kindest, sweetest, most gentle, long-suffering people uh, that I know of. 
If you walk up to me and say, she just stuck a knife into somebody out in the atrium. I would say, absolutely not. Not because she's ever written to me and said, I will never stick a knife into anybody. But because I know Kate and her character and she would never stick a knife in somebody. Kate wouldn't even slap anybody. I don't think Kate would even yell at anybody. Do you know the character of God in the same way that you know the character of people you hang out with? And if we know his character, if we study it, is it becoming more of who we are? How many of you remember the, the uh, um, uh, what do you call it, the, the, uh, the strike, the, the, the hockey strike from way back? Okay, hockey, professional hockey. My kids were into it big time. This would probably be about, it has to be like 15 more years ago or so. But the weird thing about it, this is when the, the, the avalanche was on a high run for Colorado. And so both of my boys were fans of the Colorado avalanche in hockey town here. They part- I know, it's still hard. They, 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 they actually love Patrick Waugh. Guy, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. All right. So they, 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 Patrick Waugh was there. That was a very gifted, um, though misplaced, obviously. Um, uh, 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 what do you call it? goalie? And so my guys would try to emulate him. You know, they're six, seven, eight years old. And they're trying to emulate Patrick Waugh. And they went over there. Now they're under no illusions that they are Patrick Waugh or that they'll ever be as good as Patrick Waugh. But they recognize this guy was really good, and so we want to emulate what he does if we're going to be good at hockey. Will we ever be Jesus Christ? No, we will not. But we pursue his character and check that off against ours. There should be transformation and change. Another subject, another time. Do you pursue God in that way? I have certain tendencies. But I don't make excuse for those tendencies I accept that when I do something that's not aligned with Christ, that I either don't do that or that I repent of it and change quickly the character of the God we serve in Christ. And I want you to think about that because this is the part that you're going to take home with you. This is the part that you're going to have to take home into your marriage, into your family, and into work tomorrow because you're dealing with people who are absolutely unchristlike. And some of them are you. And sometimes me. But we're dealing with people that aren't Christ-like. How do we handle this? Listen. Matthew chapter 14, 14. When Jesus landed, saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 9, 36. He saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion, as it's used in the Bible in these contexts, means to be moved inwardly, to yearn with tender mercy, affection, pity, and empathy. It refers to the deepest possible emotions. Christ was compassionate. He had mercy. I've got someone on the ropes. I'm going to finish them off with a final blow and kill them off. Christ had mercy and compassion. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, he says, but to what? Serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. For those of you last week who cooked for us, for those of you who last week who set up, for those of you last week that weren't even able to be in service because you were serving, we need to take a moment and honor those individuals today. Thank you for your work and your effort.
For those of you who came in at 6.30 this morning and you set up the coffee in the cafe, God bless you. <laughs> Seriously. They serve. Musicians who work all week long, get up early, then get up early on a Sunday morning in order to come in. For all those who serve in Osborne and all the different ways, this is the character of the Christ we serve. Matthew chapter eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. He's gentle and he's humble. I like it how it was in the message translation. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced, love that phrase, rhythms of grace. Christ is compassionate. He serves. He's gentle. He's humble. He's faithful. He's loving. He's holy. He's righteous. All these things together is the God you serve and the Christ that we follow who stands at the center of the community. Before any human individual or group of individuals, Christ stands at the center of this place. It is by his grace that we are saved and it is his character that we're supposed to emulate and use as a contrast to our own. So when you walk out of this place today and you go into your home and you go into that workplace tomorrow and you're faced by someone who themselves maybe even is called a Christ follower and they burn you and they rip you and they trash you, you have a choice to do the same right back. After all, they did it to me. Or you can stop. Stop for just a moment. And think, what am I trading off of my soul when I do that? Can I perhaps take on some aspect of the nature of Christ in this moment? Hebrews chapter 12, this last scripture I want to share with you. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. A foreword in a book often tells of some interaction between the writer of the foreword and the book's primary author or the story that the book tells. And that's the title of today, The Binding, The Forward. It's telling of the interaction between us and the author because Jesus is all through this book. Every single book within the book, every section of this has Jesus. I love what one of our, our writers or one of our speakers said earlier this year, that, that earlier this summer year, where he said that, that the Bible opens up with a marriage and ends with a wedding. And how all throughout this, Jesus is wooing us. He's reaching out to us. He's trying to draw us to himself. There will be things that we will change in this next year. There will be bindings, maybe it will be different, but the internal, the central questions will stay the same. Do you know who Christ is? And if you know that, then do you know his character? And if you know that, to what degree are you living that character out and letting it challenge who you are? These are my original covers. These are the original inserts. Stuff I'd written over the years. Scribbled on them. Don't just date God, marry him. 
Too many people like Jesus. We need to love him, I wrote at some point in time when I was younger. Religion is hanging around the cross. Christianity is getting on the cross. I've made enough mistakes in my life. I'm no different than you are. I'll tell you one mistake I haven't made. I'm very clear on who Jesus Christ is. And increasingly, I'm clear on his character. And I strive to the best I can to see that character reflected in myself, stumbling often at times. I've been blessed with people in my life that that make me aware of my stumblings. Close friends, family, my mother, thank you. In every page, he stands out. Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. He's the Redeemer, the Kinsman, the Prince of Peace, Husband, Deliverer, Ancient of Days, Victorious over all. Mighty God. The list goes on and on and on, but my favorites is that he's the rock of my salvation. That he is the rock of refuge. That he's the rock upon which we stand. Everything centers around who Christ is. And the only reason I can stand in this place even now and others of us in this gathering is because of God's grace in our lives. That will never change in this place. And if you've just joined us brand new, that's who we are. In a moment, I've asked the group to play a song for us that reflects some of this. And I want to encourage you to just take a moment to reflect before we leave this place upon what this can mean for our lives and us as a church. Before we do that, I want to pray with you. Father, I, I don't pray for them. I pray for us, Lord. God, with all the confusion, all the spirituality, instead of just actually following you, God, I pray that we would not just be zealous, but we would be zealous with knowledge, with understanding of who you are. That we not only honor you as God, but that we'd deeply dig into your character and where it is different than ours, that we'd be challenged and changed by it. Lord, for those today who are struggling, I ask that you reaffirm for them that you are a firm foundation placed upon which they can build a life and whatever storms are blasting that you will not ever, ever leave them alone. You are our rock of refuge. You are our sword and shield. You are the rock that absolutely never, ever, ever moves.
three more things over the next three weeks that um, we're not going to release as the years go by. Binding might change, but, but it's going to stay still core of who we are. Tonight at 6.30, we'll be joining up at Bethesda for prayer for schools. Join us if you can. If you'd like prayer right now for a need, there'll be those around the front available for you. Otherwise, drop in inside uh, Rock Point and uh, take a peek at what's going on there and what part maybe you can begin to serve in. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the provision that you made for each one of us, Lord. Father, as we hold these truths, let us do so with humility, with boldness, but with humility, I pray, God. Let us walk forward from this place in gentleness, with compassion, with love and care and concern. Guide us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.